Welcome to the St. Patrick Catholic Community Podcast in Scottsdale, Arizona. We are Christian Disciples in Mission. This feast of Corpus Christi, or as it's known now, the Solemnity of the Body and Blood of Christ, is about 800 years old. For about 800 years, the church has universally celebrated this feast. And it originated in the 13th century for the best I can tell, two primary reasons. One, there were questions in the academy about the real presence of Christ. And the church was making clear that the teaching of the church from the beginning was that the Holy Eucharist is the body and blood, soul and divinity of Jesus Christ. So that when we receive the Eucharist, we receive Christ into our bodies. Not just a symbol, a sign, a memorial. It's the real presence of Christ. The second reason why the feast became promulgated throughout the whole church is that there was a little Augustinian nun in Liege, Belgium, who had a great devotion to the Holy Eucharist. And she was lobbying for there to be a solemnity. I think she felt that even though it's only two months since we celebrated Holy Thursday, that there's so much going on in Holy Week that she thought a feast in honor of the body and blood of Christ needed to stand on its own. In addition to the Augustinian sister, St. Thomas Aquinas agreed with her and was lobbying Pope Urban IV to establish this feast. In fact, the three prayers that the priest prays during this Mass, the opening prayer, the prayer over the gifts, and the closing prayer, all come from the writings of Thomas Aquinas. In fact, he wrote a very long sequence in Latin that accompanies this feast. It's an option. Uh, you know the song, I'm sure. It's called Pange Lingua. Thomas Aquinas wrote that, and he wrote that in honor of the Holy Eucharist. It's a beautiful feast. We celebrate the abundance of God's lavish love for us in giving us this precious, extraordinary, immeasurable gift of the body and blood of Christ. But I think it would be helpful, it is to me anyway, to put it in the context of Jesus' own life. Like, how is it that Jesus gave us this great gift of the Eucharist? Because I think it applies as well for us as it did for the earliest disciples. As well you know, after Jesus left the desert of Perea, when John the baptizer had been arrested by Herod Antipas, Jesus went up to the Galilee from which he had come and began to proclaim the project of his Father, which Jesus called 
the kingdom of God. He proclaimed the coming of God's kingdom. And he did so, you recall, with the Galilean fellow disciples of his and the Gentiles in Galilee to a people who had been extraordinarily oppressed. All through their history, they were oppressed. These were people, as good Jews, who were longing for the messianic day, for the day to arrive when God would send a Messiah to usher in the day of integrity, holiness. They weren't sure whether it would be a general that might raise up an army once again, but they were longing for that deliverance from God. And remember, their whole history was one of oppression. They were oppressed, first of all, by the Egyptians. The Assyrians conquered the Egyptians and oppressed the Jews. The Babylonians conquered the Assyrians and oppressed the Jews. The Persians conquered the Babylonians but did not oppress the Jews. Then came the Greeks who oppressed the Jews. And in the time of Jesus, the Romans took over the mantle of oppression. By the way, there'll be a quiz on the order of <laughs> the oppressors. These people were wearied of being occupied. They were wearied of losing their land, of having the Roman taxer at the threshing floor automatically taking half of everything they produced. They were also taxed by the temple in Jerusalem and by Herod Antipas. They were barely existing. And yet there was that flicker of hope that God would deliver them. They knew that they were special to God. They knew that they mattered to God in a most serious way. And one of the ways that they celebrated that was that the Jews had a day off a week. They observed Sabbath rest. And they were very committed to Sabbath rest because it was a sign that they were precious to their God. No other people in the Fertile Crescent had that privilege. They felt honored by God to know God's law and to have God's law whispered in their ear. Still, that hope for deliverance had just flickered to a small flame, barely alive. And along comes Jesus, convinced of his God's love for people, convicted of God's merciful deliverance of the good news that was there for the people of God, that God's kingdom was all about them, was imminently coming. When they least expected it, it would break into their existence. And with the coming of God's kingdom, a sense of dignity and worth and value 
and being blessed and loved and cared for would fill the people's awareness. And Jesus, who healed the sick, cured those who came to him, did so every time as a sign of his worthiness to be believed in the proclamation of the kingdom of God. The healings were in support of his message of the coming of God's kingdom. In that context, people's joy and hope had really quickened. And his disciples, who had witnessed with their own eyes what Jesus was doing, how he was bringing good news to people and healing the sick and welcoming the least and the last, the poor and the sinners, those who were of no account in the society, were utterly welcome in the company of Jesus. They saw how Jesus really lifted the lives of women, singled them out in their daily tasks, and held up those tasks as a sign of what God's kingdom looks like. It's like a woman sweeping her house to find the lost coin, that God's kingdom was like sewing on a patch on a cloth. Simple, everyday tasks. And he made women who were invisible very visible as symbols of the coming of the kingdom of God. And every act of kindness and every cup of cold water given in his name is the coming of the kingdom. No conquering army, no center of power, not in Rome, not in Jerusalem, not in Athens, that God's kingdom comes from the transformation of individual hearts. Great hope, great sense of worth and value and dignity came along with that. And Jesus, who was astute politically and was clearly aware that having called out these corrupted scribes and the Pharisees who were corrupted, not all were, that Jesus was putting himself in great danger. In Boca de Lupe, as the Italians say, going into the mouth of the wolf. Jesus knew that. Matthew tells us he knew the human heart. He also knew that they would be looking for a way to involve Rome because Rome kept to itself the authority to deliver a death sentence. And they found their opportunity to hand Jesus over after the temple incident. You remember when he turned over the tables of the money changers and those who were selling things in the temple for worship. When he did that, that was a great opportunity to convince Pilate, who was already in trouble with the emperor of Rome for having made a few big mistakes himself, and they were able to persuade Pilate, this man is dangerous. This man could foment insurrection, revolt. And the last thing Pilate wants is for the emperor of Rome to hear that his governor could not govern. That's in the end what, Jesus, what did Jesus in. He could see it coming. 
He even told his disciples that the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem, be handed over, and killed. That's what Peter said to him. Don't go to Jerusalem. And Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. It was clear to Jesus. He also knew that his disciples would be devastated, completely devastated at his loss. Where were they to go? What would they do then? And what about the kingdom of God? And what about the mission that he was giving them and schooling them for to go and proclaim the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth? What happens to all of that? What happens to us? It was in that context that Jesus gave us this great gift. And how he did it was in a very familiar way. The Jewish ritual in a celebratory meal was for the host of the meal before the supper takes place to pick up the bread, say a blessing to God in thanksgiving for the meal about to be shared, then breaking the bread and giving a small piece to each person there. And remember, in Jesus' open table, sinners were there, tax collectors, all kinds of people who received God's blessing from Jesus as he would distribute the bread to them. That was the custom, the ritual. Jesus changed that ritual this way. When he gave them the bread in Aramaic, his language, what Jesus actually said to them was, I myself, I myself. He's giving them the bread that is his body. The word for body in Aramaic is I myself. Powerful, beautiful way that he changed that very familiar uh, ritual. And then after the meal was over, it was the ritualistic custom that the host, a palm's length over the table, would pick up his chalice, hold it there, bless God, thank God for the meal that had just been shared. <clears throat> and then when the host raised the chalice to his lips, it was a sign for all the other guests to do the same with their cup. Not dissimilarly from the way we do a toast in our society. Jesus changed that ritual. He picked up his chalice, blessed God, blessed the chalice, and asked them to drink from his cup, the cup of the blood of the new covenant, which will be poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in memory of me. He passed his cup around the table, radically changing the ritual. And they got it. The church understood it right from the beginning. One of the first things the Acts of the Apostles tells us, St. Luke, is that the disciples shared the breaking of the bread in their private homes. They went to temple or to synagogue to pray with their Jewish brothers and sisters. But right from the beginning, they celebrated the ritual of the Eucharist 
in their homes. They understood what he was doing. They would not be separated from him. They would not be lost without him. They would have him. They would be nourished by him for the work of the kingdom. They would receive his body and blood within them. And that intimacy would give them courage, would give them balance, give them understanding of what it means to belong to Jesus. He told them as well that he would send the promise of my Father. That's what Jesus called the Holy Spirit. That he would send the promise of my Father to call to their minds all that he had taught them and to give them the enlivening gift of his own spirit within them as energy and courage for the mission of the proclamation of the kingdom of God. This evening, in this gentle summer evening, gathered around the table of the Lord, we do exactly the same thing that our earliest brothers and sisters in the enterprise of discipleship did. We break the bread and bless the cup and receive the precious body and blood of Jesus Christ and the grace of belonging, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of God's saving mercy. Thank you for listening to me. Thank you for listening to the St. Patrick Catholic Community Homily Podcast. We are Christian Disciples in Mission, 